In many ways, the world that we live in, I think, is such a complicated place. Because on one hand, there are so many great things about our world. There are so many sources of joy. I think about the springtime that we see coming all around us. The sunshine this morning, the, the increasing warmth outside, the, the green that we're anticipating seeing more and more of around us. I think about the joy of being able to be outside more soon, of going biking, of, of working in the yard, of playing in the yard without being all bundled up. I think about the joy of a close, loving relationship with someone, maybe a family member or a friend. I think about how much fun it is to learn new things about this world. I think about the natural beauty of our world. Things like mountains and waterfalls and beaches and oceans. And even Lake Michigan just a few blocks down the street here. I think about even how wonderful it is to have taste buds so that we can enjoy the flavor of so many delicious foods. We have many, many blessings, many great things in our world that we experience all the time. But on the other hand, we know that our world faces, has many challenges, that we face many frustrations, that there's a lot of pain in this world, and there's even a dark side that we don't like to, to see, but we know it's there. I, I think that if we compare what we experience in this world with what we think would be ideal, our actual experience falls far short of what could be or what should be. When we look at our jobs, I know that we all, no matter how good our job is, we probably face frustrations and annoyances in our work. And there are far too many people who feel like they are stuck in a dead-end job that just frustrates them to no end. And as good as relationships can be, as good as, as family can be, as good as friends can be, still, we know that relationships can also be easily broken. They're very fragile. And for some people, broken relationships just weigh on them like a cancer that just eats away at them. And speaking of cancer, it seems not, not quite right when you see 15-year-olds getting cancer or when you see young children who can't even walk yet passing away, sometimes for no apparent reason, sometimes for diseases that are ravaging their body so early. It doesn't seem right when you see someone um, who is a young parent who passes away, leaving behind a young family. It doesn't seem fair when abuse or, or neglect or trauma the young child experiences continues to cause emotional scars that plague them for the rest of their lives. It doesn't seem fair that, that tsunamis can come in and wipe out entire villages and hundreds of thousands of people just like that. There are so many things that don't seem fair in this world. It doesn't seem fair that, 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 that situations that are completely out of our control can enter our lives and turn our lives upside down. I mean, I could go on and on. I know we could go around this room and each share our own stories of things that are challenging or unfair or dark or ugly or painful. It's this contradiction of the world that we live in. And there's so much great stuff, so much to have joy in, so much beauty, but also so much hardship and despair. Our world truly is a complicated place and our world is a broken place. I think it's reasonable to ask, why is it like this? Why is there so much pain and so much frustration? And in the midst of all this, where is God? Why isn't he doing more to address all these challenges that we are facing? I think in order to really understand the state of the world that we are in and to understand the, the right answers to these questions, we have to understand Genesis chapter 3. We have to understand what took place in Genesis chapter 3. 
My wife and I enjoy watching the TV show called The Mentalist. It's a murder mystery show that's on CBS. And one of the things that we've discovered through our few years of watching this show is how it's absolutely essential for us to see those first few minutes of the show. Because if we miss those first few minutes, I mean, sometimes we're scrambling around, but we try to get on the couch and the TV on before those first few minutes. Because if we miss those first two or three minutes, for the next 57, 58 minutes, we're scrambling and struggling to understand what's really going on because the beginning of the story is so essential for understanding the rest. It's the same with the storyline of the Bible. If we don't understand what took place at the beginning, we're not fully going to understand why everything is happening the way it is later on. So I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. We're starting a three-week series right now called The Fall. And we are in this series leading up to Easter to celebrate how Jesus overcomes all that we're looking at through the course of this series. And in this series, we're not just looking at what took place in this passage historically, even though what took place historically, it's depicted in Genesis chapter 3, does still have major ramifications for us today. We're also looking at this passage to see a paradigm that continues to be lived out in, in our lives over and over and over all the time, even here in the 21st century. And, and then this paradigm was brought to my awareness by one of my seminary professors, whose name is Dr. Richard Averbeck. I also went to church with him. Uh, he is a renowned Old Testament scholar. But one of the things that makes him unique is that not only is he an Old Testament scholar, but he also has a master's degree in biblical counseling. And so for one of my counseling classes in seminary, we read an article from Dr. Averbeck in which he is talking about Genesis chapter 3 and this downward progression of sin as it's working out there and as it works out in our lives. And this, this paradigm is going to f- form the framework for our series. And, and here is this downward progression. It starts with deception. Now deception, doubt begins to grow. Out of that deception and doubt, we begin to have these illicit desires. After that comes sin. Sin isn't at the beginning of it, but sin comes after this progression that's already taken place. And then after sin comes, there comes shame. And and when we recognize the shame that we're experiencing because of our sin, we get scared. We get scared of God. We get scared of what others are going to think. And so then we begin to scramble. And scrambling is when we're trying to cover up for our sin. And we're going to see this progression in Genesis chapter 3. And I think we're going to begin to recognize that the same dynamic takes place in our lives over and over and over. And today we're talking about the first couple steps in this process of deception and doubt. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive in to Genesis chapter 3. Our Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that in the midst of a broken world and many challenges that we face, these challenges are not the end of the story. We already know that Jesus is victorious, but we also know full well that we live in a very broken and difficult world. We thank you that in the midst of this world, we can come to you as Father, that you would have not left us, nor have you forsaked us, forsaken us. And Lord, we pray that you will, now as we turn to Genesis 3, show us with fresh eyes the realities of how this world got to be the way it is, so that we can understand what Jesus did to bring back wholeness and truth and peace to this broken world. So we pray for your guidance now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of Genesis chapter 3 just to set the context of what we're looking at here. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now let me give you a little bit of background here in this passage. First of all, we see Adam and Eve here. They're in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were the first two humans whom God created. They're in the Garden of Eden, which is a place of paradise, a place of deep fellowship and and intimacy with God. In this garden, um, there are two trees. There's the tree of life, which represents eternal life with God and all the fullness of his goodness that he has to offer. But there's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they are forbidden from eating this tree, from the, from the fruit of this tree. And to understand why they are forbidden, we need to understand what's it talking about, about this knowledge of good and evil. And we look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and we look at what this phrase means, because this phrase occurs a number of other times. It's always referring to a competence to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. It's this, this, this sense of independence, this sense of autonomy and these, these humans, they had a choice. Adam and Eve had a choice of whether or not they're going to eat of this fruit and express their independence and autonomy from God and gain the ability to determine what is right and wrong on their own or whether they're going to stay in deep dependence on God. Now, I think there is a possibility. I mean, I can't fully back it up from Scripture, but I can point to the other passages in Scripture that talk about knowledge of good and evil. I think there is a possibility that at some later point that God would have had them eat from this tree, but it would have been in full dependence on him. They would have already gained a maturity and a dependence level on him so they could handle this ability to judge what is right and what's wrong. But at this point, they've been prohibited from eating from that tree. But humans, they're, they're, they're quite literally the apple of God's eye. I mean, they're the crown of creation. After God created everything else, he created humans. He created us in his image, which sets us apart from every other creature in this universe. Being made in God's image, it doesn't have to do with how we look physically, because God doesn't have a body. It's not like he has arms and legs and a head and stuff like that. But it has to do with these characteristics that we have that are also reflective of who God is. The rational and the moral abilities. The, the ability to relate to God spiritually, which is an ability that no other creature has. God's also given us incredible dignity and responsibility in ruling and caring for this world. So we are the crown of creation. And here we see Adam and Eve here in the Garden of Eden. I already read this passage, and I want to turn back now to look at the deception that is taking place here through the serpent. It says there's a very crafty serpent here. It's Satan. Now, you may be wondering, okay, who, who is Satan? What, what's Satan all about? Well, Satan, he originally was an angel. He was a good angel. But he rebelled against God. 
and he led about a third of the other angels in similar rebellion against God. And his intent ever since then has been to lead others in similar rebellion against God. Now, you think about the movie Star Wars. You have Darth Vader, the, the chief villain of that movie. Darth Vader was not always evil. He started out very good, Anakin Skywalker. But he turned to the dark side, and he became a villain. It's the same in real life with Satan. He turned away from God. Now he's leading others in rebellion against God. And Adam and Eve were a prime target for Satan. I mean, he saw how special they were to God, how valuable they were to God, and he wanted to get at them. And, and one of the things we need to recognize about Adam and Eve is that they were innocent and they were naive. They didn't have much experience behind them at that point to help them to gain practical wisdom and street smarts. There's an interesting wordplay here between chapter 2, verse 25, and 3, verse 1. We can't see it so much in English, but let me point it out. Verse 25 of chapter 2 says, Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. The very next verse says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The word play here is between the word naked and the word crafty. Both words in the original Hebrew language sound the same. They're both, they both sound like a room. Uh, Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, were both naked. They were both arumim. And they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty. The serpent was more a room than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. There's a wordplay going on here contrasting the innocence and the naivety of Adam and Eve. I mean, they were naked. They felt no shame. It's, it's a perfect picture of, of absolute innocence. And then on the other hand, you have the crafty serpent who's coming in to deceive them. They, they didn't yet, they, they, weren't sin, they were still sinless, but they hadn't gained experience. They still had growth. They still had to grow in maturity. And, and, and Satan saw an opening here for temptation, for deceit, to lead them off course. And we may find it kind of strange that you have a serpent or a snake here that's talking because we don't see many talking snakes here. I was leading a Bible study in the jail this last week. We were going through this passage and one of the questions that came up is, what is this with the talking snake? I admit, it does sound kind of strange. But we also have to recognize that there is a supernatural realm. If there's a supernatural God, and if there are truly angels and demons, which I fully believe there are, then it's not that strange to think that a demon could be speaking through an animal. And we need to recognize that what was taking place in the Garden of Eden was very different than what we experience in, in life today. And we may think, yeah, I'd never want to talk with a snake. If I would have been Eve, I would have been kind of freaked out and kind of alarmed and kind of grossed out, and I would have said, get away from me, snake. But we have to remember, it was paradise. Eve had no prior experience with snakes to give her any source of fear or trepidation or revulsion. All she knew was goodness and peace and tranquility there in that Garden of Eden walking with God. But Satan saw an opening for deception. He comes with a very sinister question and asks Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, on the surface, this sounds like a very innocent question. Just Satan wanted to engage in some theological dialogue. Just wanted to clarify for, that he knew for sure what God had said. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? But in reality, this is a very sinister question here. And we need to recognize that Satan 
from other parts in Scripture, we see that he masquerades as an angel of light, as the messenger of God. He doesn't just come and say, okay, excuse me, can I please have a few minutes of your time? I'd like to destroy you. He doesn't come that straightforwardly. He comes deceptively, masquerading as an angel of light. And that's what he's doing here. But this question is meant to put Eve on the spot and ultimately to put God on trial in Eve's mind. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve quickly comes to to God's defense and says, no, no, God said we can eat from any tree in the garden. Except that one tree. We can't eat from that one tree, and we can't even touch that tree. Now, we need to hold on for a minute here because God never said they can't touch that tree. He just said you can't eat from that tree. But I think Eve had very good intentions here, but it points to something, a dynamic that happens in a lot of our lives when it comes to defending God. That rather than just pointing to who God is and what he said, we actually go beyond what God has said and try to add to that. In defending God, we become stricter than God himself is. And we feel like we're going to be more holy and more righteous and better able to defend God if we add to what God has already said. And that's what Eve does right here. God simply said, don't eat from that tree. And she goes beyond it and says, no, we can't even touch that tree. But I want to point out what Satan is trying to do here. He's focusing Eve's attention on the one thing that God has said they cannot do. He's doing that in order to help Eve focus on that one thing, to to begin to doubt God, to begin to question God, rather than focusing on all the blessings that God has given her. He does the same thing in our lives too, where we have so many blessings, so many good things that God makes available to us. But Satan keeps pointing out those things that make us doubt and question God. Points out the things that that are potentially or or perceptively negative about God. I mean, we're like little children where you tell a little child, no, you can't play on the back of the couch. Please get off the couch. No, you can't have that bag of potato chips before supper. What happens when, when you do that? Well, they're focused on that one thing they can't have. I mean, they have a thousand other things they can play with. They have a lot of other good food they could eat, but instead they focus on that one thing they cannot have or cannot do. And we're the same way. We get focused in on those things that God says you can't do instead of focusing on the the true abundant life that he offers us. So many people get focused in on what we call the problem of pain, of why if God's so good and so powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? But we lose sight of the fact that there's so much good and so much joy and so much beauty. For atheists who want to deny God because they say there's so much, there's so much pain and suffering that God, there can't be a good God, that's the problem of pain. They need to deal with what we call the problem of good. If there's no good, if we really live in a dog-eat-dog world, um, then, then how do you account for so much good? People expressing so much care for others, so much natural beauty. But no, Satan wants us to focus on the perceived negative. I mean, many Christians just feel so beaten down by their sense of failure and their faults that they don't have any sense of joy in life and their relationship with God. It's again because Satan is focusing us in on those perceived negative things, getting us so focused on those things that we lose sight of the goodness of everything that God has for us. And that's what he's doing here 
with, with Eve. And he begins to attack God's word. Because he even said, you can't, we can't eat it, we can't touch it, or we're going to die. In verse 4, Satan comes back and says, you will not certainly die. In this, he's directly contradicting what God had said back in chapter 2, verse 17, when God said, if you eat of this, you're going to die. Satan says, nope, you're not going to die. I mean, this is something that he's been saying over and over and over to people down through the centuries, that you can be free to do whatever you want. God's not serious. I mean, you owe it to yourself. I mean, you can do what feels good for you. There aren't going to be any major consequences or accountability here. And we have a question of whether or not we're going to take God seriously in what he says. I mean, I think of Galatians chapter 6, where, where it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If you sow to please a sinful nature, you will reap destruction. The question is whether or not we really believe that or if we're going to believe the lie. You know what? There really aren't any consequences. You can live however you want. No big deal. Uh, there's not going to be any real accountability. So are we going to believe God or are we going to believe a lie? We need to remember uh, that according to Jesus, Satan is the father of lies. Here, here's Jesus' understanding of who Satan is. He says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. This is John eight forty four. He was not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus is pointing out Satan is a liar. He's lying here to Eve, saying, you're not going to die. But he's doing that to deceive her in order to pull her away from God. Now, we may be thinking, why is God so serious about sin in our lives? Well, he's serious about sin in our lives because he's serious about us. He's serious about loving us. He wants us to, to experience abundant life. And he knows how sin can ravage our lives, how it can ravage our relationships, how it can ravage um, our, our character, our future, our ministry. He's serious about sin in the same way that parents are serious with their kids about not playing with fire. Because parents, they know that if their kids play with fire, they can get injured they can get maimed in a way that's going to stick with them for the rest of their life. The house can burn down. There can be untold damage. But Satan comes in and says to us, you know what? It's not a big deal at all. Go ahead and play with fire. It's fun. And that's what he's doing here with Eve. He says, you will not certainly die. So he's really attacking God's word. Uh, God said you're going to die. Satan's saying, nope, you're not going to die. And he goes on to say, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here he goes from simply attacking God's word to attacking God's character. He's really causing Eve to question whether God is really good, whether God really has her best in mind. He's essentially saying to Eve, Okay, look at that fruit. God wants to keep that from you because he knows that if you have it, you'll be able to experience things that you wouldn't experience any other way. He doesn't want you to, to have this knowledge of good and evil. He wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you from having full freedom. He wants to keep you on a tight leash. He wants to exert his control and keep you from experiencing what he wants you to experience. He, I want you to experience true abundant life, Satan's saying. And it's found in this way, not in God's way. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. 
So you need to go out and get what you need, Eve, regardless of what God is telling you. That's essentially what Satan is holding out to her, saying you need to do it your own way. And all this is deep deception. And and now this deception of trying to, to skew Eve's understanding of God, of what God said and who God is, he's trying to sow seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. Doubting. God, is God really true? Is God really good? Does God really have my best interests in mind? What he's trying to do is just drive this wedge of doubt between Eve and God. When I work with premarital counseling couples or with, with marriages that are struggling, one of the themes that we talk about over and over and over is the importance of trust. That if a couple has trust for one another, they can weather pretty much any storm that comes their way. But as soon as that trust begins to erode, especially in any significant way, the, the marriage, the, the relationship is going to struggle. It's going downhill pretty quickly unless that trust can be restored. And what Satan is trying to do here with Eve is to get her to distrust God, to doubt God, to drive that wedge between humanity and God. He's sowing seeds of doubt. And I know that, that we all have doubts as well. Doubt, I don't think, is necessarily an unhealthy thing. But I, want to do, I do want to talk for a minute about how, how do we deal with doubts in our lives. Because especially if, if you're in conversations with non-Christians on a regular basis, if you are just reading Scripture and, and just looking at it through the eyes of a 21st century person, it's easy for doubts to come into our minds. Doubts are common. They're normal. And I don't think they're inherently bad. They can be dangerous, but they can also be an opportunity to really dig deeper to examine the evidence of what is really true. I think of what Pastor Tim Keller said in his book, The Reason for God. He said, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. I like the idea of, of antibodies because when we, when we hear doubts, when we deal with doubts, when we really dive in, when we really investigate what is true and what's not true rather than simply taking the doubts at face value, it helps create a defense system inside of us that, that gives us a deep foundation for our faith rather than just accepting the Christian faith just because it's been spoon-fed to us through the years. Because if you've had doubts, but you've been suppressing them and pushing them under the rug, then at some point, it's going to be easy for your faith to come crashing down. So, so doubt really can be an opportunity to investigate what is right and what is true. I think Christians and non-Christians both need to, to think about re- the reality of doubts and, and examine what is really true. Unfortunately, Eve did not do this. She took Satan's questions and his statements at face value. It definitely came back to bite her very hard when she bit into that fruit. And, and so, so we see that, that, that Satan will come. He'll plant seeds of deception and seeds of doubt. And if we don't deal with those doubts and go back and ask what is ultimately true, we're going to go down this downward spiral of sin. And it's going to wreak havoc in our lives. Remember, Satan, he didn't come to Eve saying, Eve, I want you to sign this contract saying that you denounce God, that you don't want anything to do with him anymore. If he had come in that way, I I pretty much guarantee at least at that moment, Eve would not have signed it. 
she would have recognized the deception and said, no, I don't want to go that route. But instead, he came much more subtly. It's the same thing in our lives. Oftentimes, it's not so much the direct attacks that put us on guard and make us immediately go and examine what's true. It's, It's through those subtle things, through the subtle deceptions. And unfortunately, we are not like Adam and Eve who have innocence on our side. We have a sinful nature that's inside each one of us that skews our logic and skews our perspective. So we have a natural bent to choose our own way rather than God's way. I want to turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 4 in closing. Matthew 4 records the account of Jesus' temptation. I think Jesus' temptation can be very instructive for us when we consider the topic of temptation, deception, and doubt in our lives. Matthew chapter 4 Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple If you are the Son of God, the devil said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up on their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So you see that that Satan, he can definitely bring some pretty spiritual arguments. He's even quoting scripture here. It's all a part of the deception. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So we see here that Satan is trying to pull Jesus off course just as he had tried to pull Adam and Eve, of course, as well. Satan comes and calls into question Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, and he's saying to Jesus, take things in your own hands and show me. Jesus is being asked to compromise his mission and his identity here. But look how Jesus responds. Over and over, he goes back to God's word. Rather than doubting God or questioning God or taking things into, into his own hands, he says, it is written. And to each of those three temptations, he quotes from Scripture and points back to God. And when we see here that Jesus stood strong, we need to recognize this qualified him to pay the death penalty we all deserve for our sins. Satan lied to to Eve when, when he said, you know what, you will not certainly die. Yeah, she didn't die physically right away. But with the entrance of sin into the human race came physical death and even more importantly, spiritual separation from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, through his perfect obedience, through his sinlessness, through his death on the cross, paid the penalty we deserve for our sins. I want to turn now to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It talks about what this accomplished for us. It says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know what? We all have sin in our lives. We have all gone down that downward spiral of deception to doubt, desire to sin, fear, shame, scrambling. We've all gone down that spiral many, many times in our life. Only Jesus was sinless. But he qualifies us now through faith in Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, to come confidently and boldly into God's presence. We see it's a, it's a presence of grace and mercy. We don't have to fear God, but we can come into his presence and find the grace that we need to help us in our time of need. We are people who struggle with temptation. We are people who have fear and shame. And God says, come, come. I am your loving Heavenly Father. I have given you grace and mercy. Come confidently into my presence. We see a little bit later in the story of Adam and Eve, they run and hide. But now through Christ, God says, come. We need to recognize that, that unfortunately, we will live out that paradigm of that downward spiral over and over. It's kind of like this bad dream that we want to get out of, but we're like, how do we really do that? We need to recognize that at the root of every sin is a lie. And so in order to counter those lies, in order to counter the, that deception, and in order to counter that doubt, we have to turn our eyes back to the truth, and especially the truth of the gospel, that God is real, that his word is true. Yes, we have sinned, but he gives us incredible grace and mercy. We need to focus our eyes on the gospel and recognize that if God is for us, nothing can ultimately stand against us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you did not abandon Adam and Eve in their sin, and you don't abandon us in our sin either. God, this is a, uh, a bit of a, a, a challenging and a bit of a dark series that we're entering right now in Genesis chapter 3, but it's essential for understanding what we're going through in our lives, what we're going through in this broken world. And I pray that you will help us, Lord, to identify the deceptions and the doubts that want to wreak havoc in our spiritual lives that we will cling to the truth of who you are, the truth of your word, and the truth of your gospel, and that that truth will set us free from the chains that Satan wants to bind us with. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.